Oh my lord. For real. I well we also should start this podcast off. One, so I don't forget and I'll do it up front. Welcome to Creep Time the Podcast with Silas Dean and Stu. We probably sound a bit different yeah, right now. Yeah, I hope we? we do. We sound Do we sound a little more smooth? A little more polished. A little more pro. Say. A little more pro. Well, it's about time because we are a top 10 podcast in the United States. That so. is weird. <laughs> it's so that deserves its own conspiracy theory so episode. many congratulation texts into you. It does. I, creepers, I don't know what you did, but come on. Like top 10 in the country, Stu. Top 10 in the country for true crime. I think we're like, hold on. I promise we'll, I'll like stop stroking my <laughs> in a second. Well, but here's like... the thing. More than all of this. Y'all, we passed Nancy Drew. <laughs> I mean, Nancy Drew, Nancy, Nancy Grace. Drew. <laughs> Nancy Grace. <laughs> they couldn't even say my name properly. <laughs> we did, yeah. We passed, we like, I was losing my mind because my sister was losing her mind too because she listens to true crime podcasts a lot. And she was like, you passed Morbid. You passed my favorite murder. Nancy Grace was like low on the docket, but for us, that's that, number I, one. That's, that's always all been I number needed. one. We could have been the <laughs> 900th podcast in the entire world, but if Nancy Grace was 901, I would have been like, "It's it's a holiday, y'all. We won." <laughs> <laughs> I think. Well, I think on Spotify, among all podcasts, we are like top 50, which is even more insane. Because it's one thing; it's so difficult to cut through the noise of like how many true crime pods there yeah. are like we talked about that but all podcasts all podcasts on spotify that's insane creepers <laughs> what the heck we love you <laughs> creepers like you guys thank you so we just have to say on behalf of both of us thank you for sharing this podcast for listening we, we know that you talk about it with your friends you share it with your family still i've not seen any proof that anyone has shared it directly with nancy grace outside of my own dms yeah. <laughs> but <laughs> We are so grateful, so appreciative, and so excited. And yeah, I just, I got really giddy and I just wanted to give a huge thank you to them. Yeah. Oh my gosh. I love them. I love them so, so much. Exciting. I do think there's some sort of, I know I have said this in the past, but like creepers bring some sort of magic energy to this podcast. Like between all of those crimes that started getting solved, like one after the other that they recommended to us to cover. And then yeah. this, I mean, y'all are magic. <laughs> I mean, what other po- th- less than thirty episodes, and we hit top ten? That's they're doing. Mm-hmm. It's incredible, hundred percent. So we're very excited, and to celebrate episode thirty, I wanted to bring something to the table that would be really fun. <laughs> You've got Stu. that smirk on, and I'm scared. <laughs> <laughs> well, only because. So here's what we are doing: dark, sinister, urban legends, and dark behind-the-scenes stories of the Wizard of Oz. And I wanted to bring it to you because. I feel that you are the same person as I am, that there is an inherent connection to the darkness of the Wizard of Oz for some unexplained reason. Yes. I don't know what that is, but I've always felt that. You felt that too? Absolutely. Because the whole storyline is so wacky. And then like, I mean, the the Mm -hmm. minimal knowledge I've had growing up of like, just knowing that things would happen on set or whatever, but I, I don't really know anything um, but you know, know that there's it something sounded like you knew, the, you knew the most famous. Yes. Urban yeah. It sounded like you knew that one about the, the munchkin. Yes. Yeah. Quote unquote. There, I mean, 
quote unquote. <laughs> well, I have some information on that, but I wanted to do some like full on, like full scope deep digging on like, how did the movie come to be? Like, what was the production like? What was going on behind the scenes with the actors? And this has got to be like one of the most treacherous filmmaking experiences in Hollywood history, I would say. <laughs> From everything I found, I'm like, this is... This movie shouldn't have been made. Yeah. And I, it was disaster after disaster. And the other thing that I think is really eerie about it is Judy Garland being so young. Like, you forget that she, mm-hmm. I mean, I can't remember how old she was, but wasn't she like 15? She was 16. 16. She was 16. Yeah. I think when they cast her, she might have been 15. And by the time they finally started to shoot, because there were several delays, she turned 16. But it was supposed to be scoped for a role that was like, like a 10 or 12 year old yeah. or something supposed to be very young but that also i have some backstory on how she was cast too i have a lot of juicy ah, stuff i'm so here. excited I feel, like gonna, <laughs> I feel like you're gonna lose your mind so before i jump into it i just wanted to like ask your personal experience when did you first watch the wizard of oz how young were you do you remember oh gosh i mean i want to say i was really young like five or six um and then I did a community theater production of The Wizard of Oz, and I was Dorothy. Were you Dorothy? I was Dorothy. Oh, my God. But it was so funny because it was one of those community theater productions where we didn't actually have the rights to The Wizard of Oz, so it was called, like, <laughs> it was called, like, the, like, Wiz of Oznosian or something like that. And all the songs, I couldn't sing Somewhere Over the Rainbow. I sang something called... What? There was, like, a totally different song, and, like, Toto was like a stuffed animal that I had on like a rope. Like it was so <laughs> bootleg. Jeez. I also did a production of the wizard of Oz. I think I might've been a little bit older. Um, I played the scarecrow. Incredible. And my mic popped off my <laughs> ear and fell into my head no, stomach. No. So during my, the entirety of my number, <laughs> you just heard like, <laughs> like just crackly sounds. While I'm like doing a jig time and again up there, <laughs> um, similar to that, like it's our, like just on like the topic of um, bootleg shows. In my middle school, we did not have a drama club budget. Like the two women who were running it, they were just like, "We're, we're going to make lemonade out of lemons," kind of thing. <laughs> so they wrote a show. I don't know how they were able to do this, and it was called. It was called I don't know. It was called like the Stardust or like the uh, the Stardust Cabaret or something, and it was. <laughs> Basically, a choir concert where we could like play choral arrangements of like all of these big Broadway hits. Like we did stuff from Beauty and the Beast. Yeah. I think we did stuff from Cinderella and Grease. And they like strung it together with this loose ass script where Billy Crystal is hosting it. <laughs> me, <laughs> no, no, <laughs> me in a me in a f-ing suit. Stop. 7 PM and on you a know Wednesday. that they had you in mind to play Billy Crystal. <laughs> it was the only role that was written for me. <laughs> in my entire career the only time someone wrote to my character and skill set so at some point silas you're telling me that your resume was strictly the scarecrow in the wizard of oz and billy crystal the stardust cabaret i hope it was called the stardust it was called like a night to remember cabaret or something and it was they really like we didn't even have a stage do you know what they did they somehow got a budget to put um, in our cafeteria. They like blocked out a section to basically build like a like a rigged platform. <laughs> and like these two women hung the curtain. They like hung the curtain themselves. Like helped like install it. I don't know how they did all this, but 
they put on that production the following year they were like now we can actually get some budget for like something we did cinderella <laughs> thank god <laughs> thank god but i i remember that as like my first drama club middle school experience oh and i was god. i'd already done like community theater for years so i walked in and i yeah. was like i'm calling equity i'm gonna call the union this is some shit. well i wish we had starred in the wizard of oz together my god I know. I'm looking to play the witch these days. I know. I'm trying to, well, <laughs> I'm trying to level up my <laughs> role. Here's the other thing I remember about the Wizard of Oz being a little kid is that my mom, um, even to this day, has trouble watching it because she said she was so scared as a little girl when the movie came out of The Wicked Witch. And she used yeah. to, she has memories of uh, her sister like putting it on and like kind of teasing my mom like a and would oh, put it so on cruel. like on purpose to scare no. and my mom would go like run under the bed and like hide like she said she just remembers being so scared of the wicked witch um you know my my mom used to say that too like, yeah. there's something about the wicked witch that like really freaked kids out in like the 50s 60s yeah well because i think <laughs> like disturbing they it, it's weird because i think they subconsciously knew that the witch was the woman at the beginning of the movie, but like they couldn't quite mm-hmm. place her. And it's like that weird thing of like recognizing somebody, but n- like not knowing how. And like that adds to the eeriness. I think so as a kid when well, you're watching. I would agree with that, but not all of those shots were of the same woman. No. I found <gasps> out. Mm-hmm. I've, oh, baby, I've got some tea. Oh my God, I'm so excited. Uh, coincidentally, just on the topic of the Wicked Witch, can I give you a guess at what my very first Halloween costume was? <laughs> Glinda. Girl, Margaret Hamilton's <laughs> Wicked Witch. <laughs> my kindergarten costume request was to go as Margaret Hamilton from The Wizard of Oz. And I was gr- I was granted this privilege at the age of five or six. And I, there are pictures somewhere, complete with a full green face, a prosthetic nose and chin, a witch's hat, and my gown. I was doing full drag. Wait, I thought you old. literally were going as like Margaret Hamilton, like like off camera, like <laughs> not just <laughs> the actual actor. <laughs> Who are you? I'm Margaret Hamilton in in the final callbacks for the Wicked Witch in the 1939 production of The Wizard oh of Oz. Oh my god, I'm actually sobbing. <laughs> oh, that's so good. I think my costume's like tapered down after that, but I like really came out the gate swinging <laughs> with that one. <laughs> I think I had a full wig too. Oh my what was God. your very first Halloween costume? Do you well, know? you know, it's so funny that you just mentioned that. Um, I do remember going as Dorothy, like as a really little kid and my mom, this was so cute. Shout out to my mom. Cause brilliant. Cause I was so shy and she put me in a little Dorothy costume and, um, she Aww. cut out of paper, like, a a poster board um like uh what the hell does she say there's no place like home and she cut it out on like a little poster <laughs> board and like made it look like a little thought bubble almost like coming out it was the cutest thing oh my ever gosh. um That's yeah so, so I, I i do have like a love for the character of dorothy like i think she's a great little character she's a beloved character the yeah. whole movie is beloved which is what i think makes this so sinister the idea we talked about this before the idea that something that is cherished as um I don't know, so whimsical and, like, lighthearted and family-friendly actually has one of the most insidious backstories in Hollywood. Yeah, and people have made, like, so much out of it. Like, I remember reading somewhere that it's, like, 
I feel like I read this like in a history class. That, like, isn't it like an allegory for some sort like populism or something? Like, I remember people taking it into like a totally other sphere oh, I too. I wish I did research on that now. Oh, <laughs> I'm no. pulling that out of my ass. I don't even know what populism is. <laughs> I just remember. I remember that being the only thing I remembered about that. It was from AP US history and my teacher I was totally zoning out and he was like and populism actually is associated with the Wizard of Oz and I was like zoned in for about three seconds and then zoned back out immediately. High school teachers you got to take you got to take it with a grain of salt. I had some high school teachers who said some wild (laughs) shit. Oh God I'd be remiss if I didn't take this opportunity to share one of the most ridiculous high school stories. It's not at all related to this but I'm just I just want to share it because I think it'll make you piss yourself. (laughs) We had a teacher I won't say her name she was a chemistry teacher or a bio teacher i never had her i was not in this class when this happened but basically day one of chemistry and bio you always remember that it's a safety discussion that takes up the whole first day of classes Uh because you're going to be using like bunsen burners you're going to be using scalpels if you dissect things and like chemicals too so there's a lot of safety protocol so this teacher day one she's an older teacher a little like bigger like having some mobility issues she was always kind of walking around like with a limp like a bum knee (laughs) and the phrase bum knee is already a bum knee got me a bum knee and a fluttering eyelid (laughs) she she is starting her like run-of-the-mill like top of the year september like this is the rundown for safety in this class and she like it's very performative apparently she's like don't be running around messing with things that you don't know about you don't want to like get in trouble with chemicals you don't want to burn your hands off because i've seen it happen like she's doing her thing and then at one point she goes through the protocol of what happens if you do spill a chemical on yourself she goes now don't be goofing around just get under the water she's like don't be like lifting your foot trying to put it in the sink lifts her foot to demonstrate to put it in the sink Proceeds to slip out from under herself, falls backwards to the floor, and hits the ground full back. And apparently everyone in the class just sat there in silence. Full back. Full back to the ground. And she just, I think she knocked herself out. Oh my God. She just laid there in silence until, for everybody said it was like a couple of minutes till somebody was like, are you okay? (laughs) The woman is dead. I, I... I can picture this so clearly, and I thought what you were going to say is that she accidentally drenched herself underneath the chem shower. Did y'all have one of those? Oh, yeah. We yeah, did. yeah, yeah. I thought you were just We had it used <laughs> several times by, like, rambunctious kids. Oh, really? That and the, um, did y'all yeah. have the eye wash? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Oh, my God. Every time I'd leave class, i get a little yeah. drink. <laughs> I'm, I'm joking. I'm joking. <laughs> that's, I was going to say, that's incredible. That would be so much funnier, though, if she's, like, trying to, like, demonstrate, like, don't mess around with the shower and then, like, drenches herself. fully drenches herself. She fully, like, tried to lift her leg and was not stretched or prepared to do so and fell backwards on herself. She remained in a wheelchair for the rest of the semester. Did she really? She did. Oh, my God. The drama. She's, she's, she recovered fine. She recovered 100%, but it was just such a camp moment (laughs) to, like scold a class about like not goofing off and safety procedures and in the process of doing so just, she <laughs> inflicted her yeah. own injury yeah just. <laughs> oh my lord well i'll get us back on track because i derailed us with that story unless you have a high school story you'd like to share no i love i, if, I if do not, have I'll... one all all i'll say is it also involved a male teacher with mobility issues who was a real ass 
So one time he fully missed his roller chair and just <laughs> hit the ground on his oh, ass that's, so that's me hard. As hell. I've done that. <laughs> and oh, all of us. And he was like super, he was a uh, ex-professor from Duke. So like coming to my school, he was mm. like ready to like show us what it really meant to study English lit. And like he was so pretentious and to watch him fall was just like a very needed moment because we were like right in that final push before the AP exams and he was just being oh, wow. so intense for no reason. And that's all. The stress of that too. Yeah, I think that was karma. That was yeah. karma and play. Karma, baby. I'm sure we'll do another episode where we'll do a full hour of just high school stories because <laughs> horror I have stories. Horror. Every single one yeah. of them is a horror story because it starts in a high school. True crime. But oh, <laughs> <laughs> I could sit here for hours and talk about it. But I will get us on track yeah. with the insidious stories of the Wizard of Oz. So ready. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. Now, let's first start with the backstory of how the movie came to be, because I wasn't super brushed up on this. I knew, like, the timing of when the movie came out, but I wasn't too sure about why the movie was even made. Mm -hmm. So, the backstory of The Wizard of Oz. Now, concepts and production around The Wizard of Oz, they started in the late 1930s following the adaptation of Snow White, which I didn't know, which was the children's story that got made into the animation, this was like an unreal studio success at the time. They hadn't done a lot of this, like adapting a ch- like a famous children's story. Um, and it made something like $418 million. Oh, my God. For back then, that would have been insane. I wasn't sure. I could never tell from the <laughs> reporting if this was like, is this the inflated amount? So the budget that was listed was $1.5 million, yeah. which was actually like on the higher side at the time. So because this figure was but up against like the non-inflated budget i don't think this is inflated i think it made 418 million dollars that's so nuts that's that's like like pivotal yeah i mean that could completely shift an entire studio so that success led mgm to the option to take the beloved story of the wizard of oz which was a book before it was a movie and make it into a full-fledged motion picture through the studio this would be large scale high cost high budget feature premium studio talent for a box office draw unsurprisingly at the time which included shirley temple we all know this did you not know no oh no she was supposed to be dorothy what i had no idea wait when you just said that i thought you meant to say judy garland and i was like wait were you about to correct me (laughs) i was like wait so i i was waiting to see if there was more for the record i would never mess up research (laughs) I know. I know. I, that's why I was like, <laughs> crickets. I had no idea. Yeah. Well, she was the original because she was the biggest child star box office draw at the time. So they were right. like, if we're going to spend this kind of money on like a child, what's to be a children's movie, we need the biggest child star in Hollywood. Right. So she was the original concept. And she was like also like right for it, like age wise, because mm-hmm. Dorothy is a little girl. She's not supposed to be like, she wasn't supposed to be Judy Garland's yeah. age. 
So they were already stretching it. But Shirley Temple was um, what they wanted. Do you remember the Shirley Temple infomercial? Oh, my God. I was just thinking about it as you were. It's cursed. Yeah, it's cursed. Because it always came on at like fever dream hour. 100%. It came on at like 3 or 4 a.m. And it would go on for like endless amounts, an hour plus. Um, what was the, 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 all I can picture is the scene where she's doing the tap dance on the stairs and then she's the, the, not love boat. What's, is it lollipop something that she sings? Am I conflating the lollipop and guild the and girls in my suit? Bubblegum yep, rappers. Oh my God. So creepy. Hell. <laughs> That's my version of hell. That's hell. I'm not joking. <laughs> well, it would always, I was always, um. When I would stay at my grandma's, like, sleepover on, like, a babysitting night or something, I was, like, you're away from home, so you leave the TV on all night to, like, keep you comforted. And, like, after, like, the late night, like, George Lopez <laughs> would go off, Shirley Temple's infomercial would pop Always. on. They're like, America's sweetheart that has entertained families for decades. And it's those wretched songs. Yeah. And it was sinister. That was my only It really is sinister. Shirley Temple. Well, okay, so she was supposed to be the Dorothy. So what happened was... They had the script. It went through like countless revisions and resubmissions across a host of writers because there was this concern. This was the problem the studio was facing. They were like, we have this proven track record with Snow White that that did phenomenally well that like they want to see a a children's book shifted into a live action or into a motion picture. The other problem was that they had recent data that any of their fairy tale pictures were not doing well in the box office. They were like, we really have to get this script right. Wow. Like, it has to be a fine line. So they were modifying it to make it less fairy tale overall and more of, um, I don't even know how they were phrasing it. They were trying to basically paint it as, like, this is Dorothy's own imagination. Yeah. Right? This is Dorothy's world. And bring it to life and make it feel as real as possible. So they finally complete the final draft on October 8th, 1938, follow, following all the rewrites, and the production is finally ready. They're like, we can get a composer, we can cast, and we can get things underway. Now, during the casting of the movie, Shirley Temple is the, the ideal box office draw. Like, she's young, she's the right age for Dorothy, but she's not an MGM girl. So this is where, like, the old studio system gets really interesting. Because Shirley Temple was contracted over at Fox Studios, and Fox was not going to let their biggest box office draw get loaned out to MGM. Because a lot of these studios would do that. Mm-hmm. They would kind of, like, trade stars as if you're trading a football player. Isn't that so interesting? It's so weird. I was just thinking to myself, like, the whole idea that you would sign a contract with a major studio and just, like, you're kind of at their disposal for, like, scripts and stuff. Like, I mean, it's kind of, I guess, an actor's dream nowadays. You're like a rep actor. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Well, I tried to compare it. I was like, is there anything that's comparable to that in modern day? And the closest thing I could think of was Disney Channel. That is kind of how Disney Channel operates, right? Like, if you're a, a Disney kid, like, you are used as, like, a rep actor, and they pump you through, like, TV shows, Disney Channel original movies, music, and, like, whatever in-between promo project they're doing. Yeah. They probably operate on a similar way. I'm sure there's just much more protection now with the union. Yeah, totally. <laughs> but that's how it worked. They would basically trade stars, but Shirley Temple was not going to be traded from Fox to MGM for what was to be MGM's, like, biggest biggest budget children's movie to date. So, they're not going to let her out of the contract, but they had two other considerations in mind. There was Deanna Durbin, who was an MGM girl, and she was known to have this, like, really pretty operatic voice, um, but she was relatively new 
to the movies at MGM. She had not done many. She had just been signed. And she was already 17 years old. So she's on the older side, and it would have been a bit of a problem. But they also had Judy Garland, who was just a year younger. So she's also on the older side. But she had been with MGM for four years at this point, and she had done eight. This would have been her eighth movie. So she's she was by far the most experienced of anyone they were considering. So that became the deciding factor. They were like, we need someone who can handle a production as big as The Wizard of Oz. Even though Judy Garland wasn't necessarily like a solo box office draw. But by default, because of the contract issues, Indiana Durbin being a concern that she couldn't handle the role, Judy Garland is set at age 16 to take on the role of Dorothy, which would be her biggest headline picture to date at the time, as The Wizard of Oz had a budget of $3 million dollars which would have been the modern-day equivalent of 60 to $65 million. It's a big movie. Yeah. So there's a lot of pressure that was falling onto her because she knew that she wasn't MGM's first pick. That was yeah. explicitly told to her. And partially how they negotiated her contract down, which is really f- Awful. They told They told her they were like, you are not first string. Like, you are not Ugh. first pick. So if we're going to go with you, this is the rate that we're planning to offer you for your contract for the movie. And to have already worked on eight pictures before that and be treated like that just would yeah. Well, suck. this would have been her eighth, and yeah, I mean th- or, that was kind yeah. of like the Millhouse, though. Like you just you're constantly like doing two or three movies a year in the studio yeah. circuit, and her movies had done well, but none of them. I think most movies through MGM at the time were being put on for like half a million dollars at most budget wise, so this was going to be a big hike, but MGM immediately had immense pressure because this was going to be the largest adaptation to make Judy Garland fit the mold that the studio had envisioned for who Dorothy would be. And the way that the production was handled and the way Judy Garland was handled is where all of the insidious shit really goes down with this this movie. But before I get into it, any thoughts on just that process? It's so interesting to me to hear <sighs> the old studio system because I don't know. I can't imagine. It wasn't good. It certainly like definitively wasn't good, but there is something that is kind of, dreamlike for an actor to basically sit as like a movie star in rep yeah actor yeah totally um yeah it feels much like being a part of like a i guess a a repertory uh troupe or like i was honest to god thinking like dance troops like how you like get into a dance troupe and (laughs) you're like locked into contract with them but and even though you kind of get treated like crap a lot of times there is that security at the end of the day that like you're always going to have a movie. You're always going to gonna have work. And like that you'll eventually. Back then it was like you had that contract. You had a built in security of knowing your name would get bigger and bigger and bigger. As long as you I kept that renewing whole, that contract, yeah. you know, whereas now like you yeah. could do something like really big or so you think like your first big break and then you won't get anything for like, you know, another year and a half. And all that momentum you built up is now suddenly gone. So it's. It's interesting to think back in the day that they had that momentum kind of like built in for them as long as they, but they suffered, I guess, financially at times they got kind of screwed, but. For sure. I mean, I think the bigger they got, the more, like once their contract renewals came up, that's when like actual like management and agents and attorneys could like step in and like help renegotiate the contracts to be much more promising. But yeah, if you first signed to MGM or something back in the day, you were just like eating shit but they were paying for everything. Yeah. But you lived on the lot. Yeah. So you basically lived there in like one of the bungalows and like 
you would go your whole day was just like oscillating between rehearsals and like being on set and going to the cafeteria and then like seeing doctors and like you just lived in this ecosystem of filmmaking it was so so unique like yeah well I mean it's kind of like you know they say like Disney stars Disney child stars kind of go on to have a little bit of a effed up life sorry like, I'm adjusting I didn't mean oh, to no, do <laughs> a fan You're kick good. <laughs> my leg like, fell asleep and I was like I to stretch. <laughs> do that <sighs> fan kick um yeah that's I feel like um like they always say like Disney Channel stars like child stars always have this mm-hmm. potential to really have some like mental health issues down the line and I feel like even any back child then star, I think honestly I don't trust any kid star stars. but anybody that's like locked in not only to a contract to a campus sort of like that like mm-hmm. that's your whole identity your whole world and like it's a very controlled environment like yeah well and you've got these adults that are handling you that are basically yes. telling you like you're not our first pick like imagine yeah. being a kid and just being constantly told by the adults that like feed you pretty much because these studio execs, they were handling them almost like, like caregivers and then like also like prodding at you. What they did to Judy Garland through this process gets a lot darker, like how they really preyed upon her because again, because she was not the first pick and because Shirley Temple was the ideal image, Judy Garland did not fit the mold they were anticipating. So this caused a lot of severe strain. Well, for one, she was the lowest paid actor in the whole movie. In the entire movie? Yeah, unless we're counting like the the extras, which were the munchkins, who I think were paid 150 for the week. Judy Garland was the lowest paid principal actor in the entire film. Auntie M crazy. Raking it in. Of course. Raking it in. Well, she deserves it. (laughs) Her two lines, are you kidding me? Dorothy. (laughs) Dorothy. A chicken could have done that. Um, but again, that was part of what MGM like used to negotiate. They were like, we like, we're willing to like put you in this big motion picture, but we're going to pay you the least amount. And then they knew she had the experience to do this because like I said, she'd been filming MGM movies since she was 13. They knew she was talented. She got great voice. Um, so they approached it more as like a savvy financial decision that could save them money, assuming that they could just tap their resources to mold her into what they wanted to, which was this Shirley Temple type and effectively a 10 year old girl. Judy was immediately put into rehearsals and she was placed on a, on an extreme diet in the months leading up to filming some of the principal photography. And like I said, because you do live on a campus while you're at these studios, the chefs at MGM were told to swap her meals for soups, coffees, and cigarettes. Oh my God. I know. MGM studio doctors prescribed her appetite suppressants and pep pills to ensure that her energy would not go down during rehearsals while she lost the weight. She was put through rigorous rounds of screen tests at the time as well to ensure that she would look the way they wanted. This included full binding of her chest to make her look younger. She was fitted with numerous blonde wigs as they found that audiences were tending to prefer blonde leads over brunettes. Her teeth were fit with custom caps and she had nose discs placed into her nose to slim it and turn it upwards. You're joking. No. You can imagine... Oh what this? God. What kind of impact this would have on the psyche of a sixteen-year-old girl? Oh my God! The 30s. Like the lifelong the, trauma. The diet thing, like, doesn't surprise me. I mean, it's wretched, but doesn't surprise me. The thought of like altering her face like that and 
binding mm-hmm. her chest, like I'm sure with like bandages and everything, is just yeah, <sighs> like oh god, that's creepy. And she was going through this for months. I mean, it was months of them constantly like getting her in front of a screen test. There's lots of pictures and old videos you can find from these screen tests too. It's really interesting mm. um, with her in the blonde wig, which was supposed to be. They even started shooting in the blonde wig and eventually had to go back and reshoot it because um, they swapped a lot of things out last minute. But yeah, it was just like constant pressure where they they would get her in front of a camera and they're like, "No, it's not right. It's not right. She doesn't look right. She's not thin enough." Or like, we have to change the wig, or the hair doesn't look right on her face shape. Like constant constant pressure like this which i i think was just while on medication i think was just adding to like her having a psychological breakdown as a 16 year old kid so judy's peril in reaching the dorothy that they wanted was only a sliver of the chaos that was going on behind the scenes here meanwhile the first of four directors on the movie um who would ultimately handle the project it, it was underway right so they have some early test footage They've got makeup for the other characters they're looking at. And I think the first director is Norman Terug. Uh, He was the original director. But after doing the Technicolor tests, he was reassigned within MGM for an unknown reason. And they bring in Richard Thorpe onto the production to fill his seat. So then we start production. We get nine days into filming some of the early photography of Dorothy. They've got her meeting the Scarecrow. Maybe a few scenes with the Tin Man. And some scenes at the Witch's Castle. Their original Tin Man, Buddy Ebsen, suffers an extreme allergic reaction while on set to the aluminum makeup on his skin and is hospitalized in severe condition. Oh, my God. Like, right out the gate, think bad, bad shit sewn down on this production. It's a cursed set. So production completely halts. Ebsen remains in the hospital and is eventually released from the film because MGM is like, we cannot slow production on this. Like, we have a release schedule and we have to go back and do reshoots now because none of that footage is usable. So we have to fire him and get a new Tin Man. So the studio, now already somewhat behind schedule, they start panicking. So Jack Haley is brought in to replace the Tin Man in a new makeup technique that would ensure his skin would be somewhat protected. <laughs> Turns out it was not. <laughs> Basically, I think what they did was they did a layer, a thick layer of clown makeup, like white base makeup on the skin. And then they did like aluminum powder on top of that. Okay. That was the new makeup technique because they were like, we can't take a risk of somebody else having another reaction to this makeup. But because they were already behind schedule and Ebsen's voice was already in most of the original recordings, they didn't really go back to like swap out the vocals. Most of those vocals you hear are actually Ebsen's and not Jack Haley. He just came in to do like the pickups on the lines during the reshoots. Wait, so is there mixed? Are you saying vocal, just the songs? Like... Most of the songs, yeah. Most Especially of the songs. In, okay. in the ensemble songs where they're all singing together. Those yeah. are not Jack Jack Haley at all. Like okay. they, they did not have the time to go back and re record those and it would have cost them more money and they were like, It's not gonna be necessary. Yeah. Now in this time, there were still issues that were going on with the studio and Judy's looks from some of the early test footage that was coming out of set. They were concerned that the dress didn't look right. Uh, They did not think she was thin enough. The blonde hair looked very out of place on her because she had dark eyes. So another round of modifications were made. Of the most notable was the swap to the brunette wig with the pigtails, which is the most commonly associated image of Dorothy that we know of today. Mm -hmm. But even more is going on behind the scenes at this time outside of the whole Judy Garland thing. So 
MGM, they start reviewing some of that early test footage from the first nine days. And they're like, this is bad. This is really bad. (laughs) They thought that Thorpe, the director who came in as the replacement, was rushing the production. Mm. Performances were not good. Everybody looked chaotic. Scenes felt rushed. And this was all on top of the issues that they were already persistent with their concerns of Judy Garland's look. So they were like, we're going to go back again. So MGM replaces the director yet again with George Cooker, who takes over the entire production and the reshoots. And he's kind of brought in to like start the whole thing creatively from scratch, especially now that Dorothy's going to have a new look with the brunette wig. And basically he comes in and they have a new Tin Man who they're loaning out from Fox Studios. So they huh. wouldn't give Shirley, but they would give this guy. <laughs> but <laughs> so Cooker comes in and he's really just there to help like redirect things creatively because he can't stay for the entire production. He has a contract to go shoot a movie called Gone with the Wind. Oh my goodness. So yeah, so he's uh, he's going to be tied up. So he's like, let me just come in and like patch a few holes here and like see what we can do. So he's brought in as a temporary fix to get Wizard of Oz back on track. The production would need to replace the director yet again because, again, he's going to leave. So they get Victor Fleming. Now, Fleming comes in. He sticks to the creative direction that Cougar laid out for, like, the reshoots. And finally, finally, after all of this bullshit, they can hit the ground running and actually start making this movie, which would take six months. And it was unbearable. Before I get into everything that happened during the shooting during those six months... The chaos of those director swaps. I mean, I'm surprised the project didn't even get, like, scrapped. The chaos and also the fact that all this came down, not all of it, but a lot of it came down to her damn hair color is so, like. <laughs> it's so odd. It's, it's so, so telling think, of like, the what time. what was precious to them. Yeah, yeah. What, like, what was precious yeah. to the studio, I guess. I don't know. I mean, I guess these do draw in so much money that you can, like, waste time over what most people would consider, like, silly decisions like that. Like, whether she's a blonde or brunette. Yeah. I can't imagine Dorothy blonde. It would seem so odd. It would seem so odd. But, like, I mean, at a certain point, you have to, like, are you going to sacrifice the quality of the entire production just so you can get the damn wig you want or the damn hair color you want like wouldn't you rather the performances be of quality than i think people will get past the wig they won't get past (laughs) it if the performances are bad people will get past the wig they'll get past a damn wig okay well part of the wig decision actually part of that was mgm but part it was more so actually george cooker the guy who came on to like redirect the creative direction so because they were going to go back and do reshoots anyway he was the one who brought it up and he was like, she doesn't look right as a blonde. He was yeah. like, it's, just, it's not very her. Audiences aren't used to seeing her as a blonde. He's like, I just don't think that's the right direction for this character. Because it was a very glamorous blonde wig. Several yeah. glamorous blonde wigs they had her in. It was like very long, very big, golden. And it, it was like not at all like farm girl. So they're like, we need to go back and revisit this one. <laughs> so that's all put to bed shooting can finally begin for a six-month period. Now, for one, this was a Technicolor movie. We know that. I was always told it was the first movie in color. I think that's historically not true. And since we're a history podcast now, we've got to be accurate with these things. (laughs) Fat checked. (laughs) Um, But this was one of the first Technicolor movies. So it was still a relatively new process, but it required extremely bright lighting to work on camera at all times, meaning that the sets were 
unbelievably hot stew. Like records, um, old MGM records of the indoor temperatures that were recorded said that most days on set it was over a hundred degrees indoors no, no. at all times. They what? filmed every day, four a.m. to seven p.m. minimum, mostly doing overtime shoots six days a week for six months in these conditions, in those wigs, in that makeup, in those costumes. That is hell. 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 This oh is worse God. than a summer stock. <laughs> I know. Like... Jesus. I would go to Monomoy any day over this. <laughs> Let's see. How would they keep the makeup on? It was just a lot of like touch ups like between powder. Takes. Oh God. But yeah. A lot of powder, Gross. a lot of like setting and like, I mean, they blew a lot of, they blew a lot of film on this movie because they would have to do a lot of takes because of issues like that. Like a bead of sweat comes down, but yeah. it was all worth it if they wanted to have this huge spectacle of a big Technicolor movie. Yeah. Um, I do have some interesting facts about like some like camera trickery they used in the the Technicolor, which I'll get into later, but it's, it's pretty cool. Like how some of it works. Mm-hmm. But what was actually happening during the shoot process that made this so damning? So everything and anything. I was like, take a sip, baby, because we're about to get into some <laughs> shit. Oh, I'm ready. Anything and everything goes wrong during this. So for one, <laughs> you can imagine like all the actors, they're going through absolute hell during mm-hmm. this process because they're in these ridiculous costumes and it's unbearably hot on set. But part of the problem with all of this was that their makeup is running. But most of their makeup is toxic. I didn't know this. Like, really toxic. So, for one, they have the Tin Man um, from Fox Studios, Jack Haley. So he, even though they had a new technique for his aluminum makeup, it still causes an infection. He gets a severe eye infection throughout the filming. Um, which most yes, I think he has to take like several days, if not weeks, off at a certain point, and they have to like reschedule things. Margaret Hamilton, our Wicked Witch, she could not eat while in her makeup during the entire filming process because the green makeup was copper-based. And if it was accidentally ingested, like, at her lips, it was lethal. So for the entirety of her shooting, like, for whenever she's in those scenes across those six months, 4 a.m. to 7 p.m., she has to go without food. This is actual torture. It's, like, horrible. I don't, we talk, We're like, oh, how nice it must be to be, like... A rep actor at a studio. And meanwhile, this is full on slavery. This, this is, is slavery. actually triggering. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And on top of that, like they couldn't get the damn dog to cooperate. Reportedly in one scene, they wasted like 12 takes worth of film just because they couldn't get a shot of Toto like walking with them on the yellow brick road. Oh, my God. The dog just wasn't following. It just wasn't listening. This is when they're like skipping away from Munchkinland. Yeah. But of the most notable... And the first of actually many onset catastrophes that I wanted to talk about. We have Margaret Hamilton, who again played our Wicked Witch. And what happened to her, I think this was very early on in her filming. Do you know anything about this accident? I don't. Maybe not. It's not very commonly known, this one. Is it about so this the bike? Is from... No, there was something with the bike. but that Oh my God. Okay, Hamilton. okay. So... <laughs> Which is crazy. So this is Hamilton's um, exit from Munchkinland. If you remember the scene when they're first in Munchkinland at the beginning of the movie. Yeah. And she goes, I'll get you, my pretty. And your little dog, too. And then she kind of cackles and, like, goes into, like, an orange cloud of smoke, right? Yes. Like a fire cloud. Now, the way that this worked, it was a concealed elevator that was installed to the lower half um, below the stage level. 
as fire and smoke would erupt to kind of dramatize and conceal the exit. The first take they did of this, it went super well. They were like, wow, they, we, we, we kind of got it. So, like, let's do another one for safety. The burst of fire came too soon. So the flames set her on fire <gasps> on her green copper-based makeup, causing third-degree burns on her hands, face, and her arms. She's rushed to the hospital in that costume, in that makeup. And she would record it, reported that she had to recover for three months in the hospital because she was effectively burned alive on the set. Oh, my God. I've and, never heard that in my life. And it was a nightmare because the problem was, is like, that makeup, like I said, is highly toxic. And she now has open wounds on her hands, arms, and face. And they couldn't even get it off with, um, because how they would usually remove that makeup was using, I think, acetone. And they couldn't, they couldn't use that on her skin. With it was acetone? Burned. That's literally a nail polish remover. <laughs> they switched to using alcohol to get it off um, oh my gosh, in the hospital because thing. they just had... They just had to get it off her face because she was in agony, like covered in burns. And I mean, that really like marred her for a good part of her career, too. Now, of the dark nature that was going on with with that whole business, there's also the handling of Judy Garland while on set. And mind you, she's not only on set for this movie six days a week, she's also balancing it with school. So they have her with a tutor for a good part of the day. And then when she's not with the tutor, she's back on set, like, under these lights. So she's balancing all of that. And because of these demands on her to basically keep her working for every hour of the day that they had her available, and they needed to pick up the pace on the production, she is seeing multiple studio doctors where they have one who's giving her medications to keep her weight down. There's one who prescribes her uppers to, like, perk her up and keep her energy high. And then she can't fall asleep at night because of this. So there's one who's prescribing her, like, sleeping medication. So she's she's got a whole medicine cabinet that she's going through every single day, basically. What a cocktail for a sixteen year old! My God, it's it's an absolute nightmare. But because of this, this actually caused a bit of an issue on set because her behavior becomes notably strange on set as a sixteen year old. I mean, they say she's like acting like overly juvenile, and she gets like stuck in these laughing fits because she's effectively high on set for the entire movie. Because they just keep pumping more and more medication into her over this six-month period. But she, like, falls into these giggling fits. And one of them became so bad that she couldn't get through a take. That in the middle of the take, the director, I think it was Fleming at the time. Or maybe it was Veter, I can't remember which one. Jumped down from, like, his little chair and slapped her across the face in front of everybody. On set. Okay. This is I've a, this officially is a dark switched place. into dark. <laughs> this is dark. That just took me to another like my stomach just dropped when you said that like we're officially not in kansas anymore <laughs> we're certainly not <laughs> holy we're on an mgm set in a hundred yeah. degrees high off our ass oh and there's a 40 year old man slapping us in the face good it's cruel night. the whole the whole project is cruel but it does not end there it gets even worse believe it or not there are other instances of abuse and lewd comments that were made to judy while filming Specifically from the three men who were her co-stars, who were constantly making her the butt of the jokes or making jokes at her expense. Most specifically about the binder around her chest. Of course. Um, And it got even worse uh, during the Munchkin Land filming because reportedly a lot of these Munchkins were harassing her, pinching her legs, and many of them putting their hands up her skirt while filming. (sighs) So this goes on 
it's hor- this is horrid. I'm like I'm sorry to horrid. put you through, but it's no. It just, d- but I, doesn't it color so much about what we know? How tragic Judy Garland's life became after. Like this is people do not understand, and they certainly didn't understand back then what developmental like. I know trauma is a very buzzy word right now, but that mm-hmm. is traumatic, and that kind of stuff, like when you're that young can actually your brain is malleable enough at that point to have a, a really to be like stunted almost by those experiences i oh my god my stomach is turning so awful most people they i mean i absolutely agree with you that this was wholeheartedly formative for judy garland how she yeah. saw herself but most people cite this as the inciting incident or picture that prompted a lot of her long-term struggles with self-image, but most specifically mm-hmm. her dependency on prescription medications to be able to work these hours. Yeah. To keep up this. I mean, if you do this for six months straight and you're working like 12, 15-hour days, like you're going to be... And you, she did that for decades after this. She would continue doing this and under this format. What, did she... I Like, when I kind of say that her parents weren't really around that much, like... You're talking to the right person because I happen to be a Judy Garland fanatic and I know <laughs> almost everything about her. Well, okay. her father died when she was very young. So she got signed. She Her name is Frances Gum. I don't know if you know that. Oh, I had no idea. Yeah. She, her mother was like a classic, like vaudevillian stage mother. Um, and I think her father was more of like a, it's like a simple working man. But it was her and her two older sisters who got started in vaudeville when they were kids. And the way the studio auditions worked back in the day is like they would just have like open calls where you could go and like audition in front of like the big wigs. And Judy Garland got brought in and around 12 and 13, 12 or 13, they finally thought, you know, she's got a good voice. Like we can bring her in and just see how she does. She gets signed to the studio and she's the sole breadwinner for her family. Like Judy's check goes straight towards the family uh, because I don't think her sisters were studio actresses at all. They're still out doing vaudeville. And there's internal resentment from them. But her father dies like when she's about 13, 14. And it's just her mother who was notoriously abusive and cruel. So she has really no parental figures by the time she's filming this movie. (sighs) Like her her guidance is the studio. Everyone who works at the studio, those are her pseudo like guardians. Yeah. And and there's no, it sounds like real female figure on set to kind of protect her i mean i'm sure she relied on the crew and whatever but when you're working on a show that's like this chaotic like there's really seems like there's no bandwidth for like somebody to really take care of you it's kind of just yeah. like everybody there's nobody fending her for age themselves. too yeah, yeah there's nobody she could who can relate to her well she did have um it's interesting you bring that up because i do have a lot of research here on who her stand-in was who was a, a girl who i think mm. might have been a little bit older than her but she might have been the only there are pictures of them on set together that's so cool. I think she might have been her only like her only friend through this whole yeah. picture. Margaret Hamilton's burned. She died <laughs> I was going to say <laughs> Margaret Hamilton's burned, and then Auntie M, you know, is like, <laughs> "Bitch, I have two lines in this movie, and then I'm out of this 150 degree set." <laughs> well, actually, I don't even think those sets with Auntie M had to be filmed because those weren't Technicolor. So they didn't have oh, to be under those right. lights. <laughs> so she was they just got out chilling. Free. <laughs> she was chilling on the porch set with the lemonade the twister the twister lemonade and the twister yeah it's a twister now let's talk about that common legend that we touched on earlier on about the munchkins swinging in the forest because you do know this one so 
there is this common urban legend that in the background of the scene after the Wicked Witch leaves, after they pick up the Tin Man, they kind of skip off during um, the reprise of, we're off to meet the wizard. And as they're skipping, if you look to the background, you can see what looks like between the trees, a small person or a small body swinging on a rope back and forth. The legend has always said that it was one of the munchkins who had climbed up onto a, a stage tree or ladder and hung himself on camera at the exact moment that he knew they were rolling a take. It suggests that this was never caught in the final edit of the film, and when the film was eventually released on VHS, everybody at home could replay this moment, and they were like, what is that? And it became this lore that it just like couldn't be edited out of the film, and no one knew about it until, like, I don't know, like 70s or 80s when VHS came out. Now, it has since been analyzed, remastered, and the footage looks like an optical illusion i think it's it's a crane like an onset animal that like flapped its wings and it really makes it look like something is swinging between the trees but i think it's pretty definitive that it was just an animal and it was not a munchkin who killed himself wait 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 wait, wait. hold up back up Holden. i thought you meant a crane like a like a building crane no no no. i'm actually like a more bird. Uh, well you know i have a problem with those <laughs> So now I'm actually more terrified. I don't terrified. know if the creepers know that, that you have, like, bird phobia. That's my one big phobia, creepers. Birds always has been since I was, like... shouldn't have mentioned it. Now we're opening up the... That is a damn... The possibility. ...bird that I'm seeing wingspan in that moment. Yeah. yeah. Goodbye. If you look, I can if you never really watch that again. And, like, you look at, like, a zoomed version. I know this is, like, <laughs> almost as sinister as someone hanging themselves. But, yeah, it's a bird just flapping its wings. Um... But it really did look, I mean, I got told that from my cousin when I was a kid, that that was an actor that hung themselves. And I thought it was so morbid and terrifying to think that that was, like, caught and preserved on film. That might have been one of, like, my earliest, like, I don't know, sinister, like, story experiences. Well, and now, you know, if you were somebody that knew about the backstory of like the set being as rough to work on as it was like it's entirely mm-hmm. plausible too that somebody was oh, yeah. so I overworked mean, this, and... this production is already so seedy like yeah. of course like something sinister like that could happen goodbye i cannot believe that as a bird i'm not gonna recover <laughs> <laughs> i'm gonna have to send you like a zoomed in clip later so you can take a look and really, <laughs> really i won't see sleep what it, tonight what's going on there yeah <laughs> Um, now let's see what else happened here. Additional dark legends of the set. Well, this isn't a legend. This is confirmed. So during the famous poppy scene where it snows, Hmm. that is asbestos that was used on set. (laughs) They used asbestos as snow for the props of snow. Like they knew that was asbestos? Yeah. I don't think anybody knew how horrible and damaging (laughs) it was to your body or lungs, but yeah. They're fully laying in, like, beds of asbestos. During okay, filming. speaking of, like, the Shirley Temple infomercial, what the hell was the asbestos commercial that used to come on all the time? That's also a fever dream. Yes. I, I have no It's like, idea. if you or someone like... you know has mesothelioma. Mesothelioma. That's what I'm thinking of. <laughs> <laughs> With an exclamation point at the end. <laughs> the way you said that. <laughs> mesothelioma. <laughs> Bingo! <laughs> oh, God. Jesus. Um, 
what else did I have? Oh, and there were other reports of animal abuse, I guess, during the Emerald City where the horse of a different color. So the way that they got those horses to look like that, they painted them with colored gelatin, which is f- you know what gelatin's made of. Um, they painted their fur with that, uh, but they to get them to stay still to do it, they had to essentially like abuse them, like whip them. Yeah. A lot of just like shady, shady shit's going on. But if you can believe it or not, <laughs> the production could not close without another hiccup. <laughs> so they have their current director, Fleming, right, who's basically finished the majority of the movie. What happens with the previous creative director, Cooker, who went over to Gone with the Wind, he gets fired from gone with the wind so then fleming gets switched over by mgm to go finish out gone with the wind and they have to replace another director on the wizard of oz to basically finish out the movie it just saw so many so many hands oh god the new director is king vidor uh he's brought in to finish the final scenes of the movie which included all of the farm sequences as well as somewhere over the rainbow those were filmed last wow isn't that interesting? I always find that strange to hear about like filming timelines and when it it's like um out of step with the chronological movement of a movie. It's very disjointing. Yeah. Uh, I I do have one thing. I think this is correct that I thought somewhere over the rainbow wasn't supposed to be in the movie. That's true. It was supposed to be. Okay. Cut. Yeah. So maybe that's ins- why they did it at insane. the end. Mm. Well, it was supposed to be in the movie. I think every there were a lot of things that were supposed to be in the movie that eventually got cut, but I don't think it the filming of that came at the end because it was supposed to be cut. That that all came after they did test screenings and the movie oh, was running okay. like way over and they're like, We cannot put out a two hour movie. I mean nowadays people are putting out like three and a half hour movies, but at the time you were like pushing it if you did like ninety minutes. Yeah. So they're like, We we've gotta cut some stuff and somewhere over the rainbow was supposed to be cut. But the director actually fought to keep it in. He was like, I think this is the best showcase of Judy Garland's voice. I wonder if you can go or if anybody's ever marked like where you can tell that it switches direction. And like if it I I feel like you'd have to be a real Mm. cinephile to like want to go back and do that. But yeah, that would be interesting. interesting. Huh. Well, I mean, like I said, you can at least there is definitely like, I don't know if it's just because there's a color difference, but there's a tonal difference to the farm scenes and yeah. somewhere over the rainbow, I would say, versus the rest of the movie. <clears throat> Sorry, I got a crackly voice. <laughs> <laughs> well, every single time I clear my throat, I'm like, <clears throat> no, you just got to go full throttle directly <laughs> into the mic. <laughs> so. He's he's brought in, though. He films those final scenes with the Twister. Actually, some of the... I won't get into it, but the behind-the-scenes stuff and how they did, like, the Twister special effects, it's really interesting. Um, I think it was, like, a giant, like, piece of fabric. It was, like, <gasps> like, like colored gauze or something that they, like, oh spun. It was, like, 35 feet long, and they, like, spun it to make it look like a Twister. Isn't that so cool? Why did I just envision you with a piece of fabric just above the set, stirring it like a damn pot? <laughs> Silas, I mean, realistically, again. that might have that might have been like what they did. It really might have been. They, yeah, they did a lot of like fun stuff on this. Um, it had state of the art special effects at the time. Wow, <laughs> some of them look legit, but. Production finally ends. Finally, after six months, that damn movie is finished, and post-production and release would go into effect. Now, as everybody knows with post-production, sometimes you have to go back and refilm certain things. There are reshoots if things did not come out the way they anticipated. Now, Margaret Hamilton is livid 
with this damn studio because they essentially caught her on fire. So she outright refused to go back and do any of the pickup footage during the post shoots, specifically of the broom sequences, even though MGM needed it. So this is where they brought in stunt double Betty Danko to do the shots under heavy makeup to look like Margaret Hamilton. I think of the bike and the broom. But wow. specifically, they, they needed, like, the broom shots. It turns out Margaret was very right not to go back and trust them because a malfunction would take place with the spoke machine attached to the broom, which resulted in a severe injury for Betty that left her unable to work. <sighs> this is a cursed movie. Oh, my God. And the actors are just getting, like, annihilated. Maimed. Literally maimed. If SAG was around back then, SAG would be all over this. All over it. Well, then came the issue of how do you do um the transition from like like sepia? Is that sepia? 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 Yeah. Know, yeah, sepia to the full like colorful world of Oz and Munchkinland. So this posed a bit of like a budget concern for them because the way that they would do this, if you remember the transition scene, the mm-hmm. house goes through the twister and lands. And then Dorothy goes to open the door, and it's still in that, like, sepia tone. She opens it, and it's pure color. To do this transition, they would basically have to do a hand-tinted frame-by-frame stencil overlay. And they were like, we don't have the time. We don't have the money. So they did something really interesting. This is actually one of the cooler facts about The Wizard of Oz. They filmed that scene of Dorothy going to the door from behind. It's actually not Judy Garland. It's her stunt double, Bobby Cochet who was a stand-in for Judy throughout the entire filming, they put her in a sapia-toned version of the dress, <laughs> and they painted the set to be sapia-toned and put, like, a soft brown light over it. That <gasps> shot, the entire shot, is in color. It just gives the illusion of the transition. Oh, color. that's brilliant. That is really Isn't cool. That so interesting? Yeah. It's weird to think I was like, that's not Judy Garland. Wow. I wonder where the, the sapia-toned dress is, if anybody ever preserved it. Because I know that they preserved oh, so sure. much stuff off the set. I've seen the dress. I've seen the dress, <gasps> Judy Garland's uh. dress in person. And it was shot. This is how you <laughs> – I know you know that I'm like a fiend for this stuff. Is yeah. I was at Planet Hollywood, I think, in Disney. <laughs> I was 14. And I, we, I asked to get up from the table so I could go look at it Aww. for a prolonged period of time. Because they also had the <laughs> shoes, I think, too. Oh, my gosh. It, it's something about seeing – I'm a sucker for seeing movie memorabilia. Cause I so really, so really am I. Believe, I believe it has, like, energy to it. I swear to God, I do. I do, I too. Saw, oh, my God. What did I see from Hocus Pocus? That literally knocked me on my ass. I think it was the statue that Winnie turns into at the end. And she goes – Oh, my God. Stop. Mo. And then she <laughs> freezes to the statue. I went up. I grabbed right onto that hand. I held it. <laughs> <laughs> never gonna give you up <laughs> i tasted that moment i was like i'm right here right now with oh you. oh my god it's so cool it's so I, it's so damn cool i love that you have an affinity for like like memorabilia and objects and like the sentimental component of that like i totally feel that i think that they hold like i used to save like anything from a production i did i would save like the tiniest little thing just because it's it does have a little magic to it it do, it's like a tangible sliver of time. It's like a it's like a little memory. Maybe that's yeah. like hoarding behavior. I mean, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I believe it. I believe it. So what'd you say from tour? <laughs> 
myself. <laughs> my soul. <laughs> no, I do have stuff from Taurus still. Uh, it's somewhere, but I think it's in storage back in back on the East Coast. Back in um, hell. Back in any time that you want to go to like a Planet Hollywood or oh like a movie God. museum, you let Mama know. Oh, I'm I am ready. Book us a ticket immediately. I'm so obsessed with that stuff. Mm. Now, let's let's button this up here about like what closes out the Wizard of Oz. So, what happens with the release? So, like I said, early test screenings start in June of 1939, and they're like the film is way too long. It's over two hours, and MGM would have to make some like substantial cuts to get it down to like a reasonable 90 minutes. So they end up cutting a lot of the filler scenes. They end up cutting some of the songs. One of the most commonly um, underappreciated songs, I guess that got cut from the score was the jitterbug. Most Mm -hmm. of which I think the reason they cut it was because the original Tin Man, Ebsen, his voice was a little too prominent in it. So they're like, the movie's already running over. His voice can be heard. It's it. We should probably cut it, but they really wanted to cut somewhere over the rainbow because they thought it dragged. But they ultimately ruled against that under the director's suggestion because he said it's this is this is Judy Garland like this is what people are going to come to see like this mm-hmm. song because she doesn't really sing she sings but not like that throughout the rest of the movie she doesn't really have like a song and it comes at the very beginning right yeah 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 so you need there that is you a need reprise some of entry it. point for you like yeah. showcasing her it establishes Dorothy yeah I agree with that decision, but there was a reprise of it in the witch's castle when she's like locked in the room oh, yeah. and the hourglass is running out. Um, a recording of it still exists, but the song was cut. Lost footage. My Maybe. stomach just dropped because I just thought about that scene and how much she's like about to cry. Remember when she's like, don't, don't take, what does she say? Remember when she's looking in the crystal ball and I, from what you've now told me about like how medically messed up judy garland was i think a lot of that was great acting high but she was high as hell completely high also probably i mean the the weird tactics directors would use to like abuse people into crying in scenes too like horrible i guarantee that was going on behind the scenes but also it's weird to think and it's hard to conceive but she was really like a 16 year old pro at this point this was not the first time around the block yeah most people wouldn't even do like eight movies in their full career she was not even an adult, and this was her eighth picture. Like, she knew her way around a set. She knew, like, how this worked. Yeah. It's fascinating. But by August, after they make those cuts and they get the movie down, the film officially opens nationwide. And after all of this, it's initially not even a financial success. They <laughs> counted it as a loss due to the high production cost because they were, like, so over budget with making it. Um, It wouldn't be until years down the line when they start kind of it develops its own like fandom amongst children, I guess, and families. They start kind of selling it out to TV networks, um, like selling the rights to run it. Uh, but ultimately, it does like bring them back the money they were hoping for. And I think in total, it grossed like $640 million. <laughs> I think in today's currency is how they're counting that. Okay. Yeah. But still, I mean, that's a substantial hike. It's a lot. Yeah. Because, I mean, they were estimating. In today's currency, it would have cost them, what, like 60, 65 million to make the movie? I mean, that's a pretty sizable success. So what is the legacy of The Wizard of Oz, Stu? While the movie holds a special place of nostalgia for many people, its inception and creation were marred and are considered one of the most treacherous in Hollywood history. Because ultimately, 
people do credit this as the inciting incident for Judy Garland's lifelong dependency on prescription medication Mm -hmm. to keep working these hours as she would finish out her contract at MGM. I think she's released in her 30s. I forgot what it was that happened. She had multiple suicide attempts in her life, but I think it was after her second suicide attempt that MGM cut their ties with Judy Garland. And she was just like, she wouldn't, no other studio was going to sign her because she had such a reputation for being difficult on set, but the woman hadn't slept in like 10 years. Between studio greed, industry malpractice, and exploitation, The Wizard of Oz stands as one of the most sinister projects to ever come out of the MGM system. And ironically, it is still celebrated as this whimsical children's movie to this day. Well, I think that on that note, we should button this up because that is the sinister and harrowing (laughs) story of The Wizard of Oz. Stu, any final thoughts on... I know we've basically talked about everything. I I think we could truly be categorized as historians on The Wizard of Oz at this point. But Well, you certainly can. I feel like you and I need like a a Judy deep dive at some point Mm. where like you we watch like back-to-back stuff about Judy and you just I need a full educational like day with you oh I I told you I fully the movie's called me and my shadows right the one with Judy Davis we were talking about yeah I fully made a friend of mine sit down in my bed we laid down together and I put that on my tv and I made us watch that together I considered it education oh my god historical education (laughs) historical education that and also creepers when i was um when we were waiting to get back in the studio we were on the phone while i looked through the judy screen test mm, and blonde hair super eerie and like with the blonde hair does not yeah i can see why they were like no this isn't working it just doesn't look right but for farm girl it just makes sense no but silas and i noticed that Every single, not every single one, but the majority of the screen tests were like marked as Halloween day, which is just, the whole thing is creepy. Highly recommend going and looking at those if you haven't yeah, any, any seen of the them before. Any footage is really interesting. You know what's crazy? You can listen to the cut song, The Jitterbug. And like I said, you can listen to the cut reprise of Somewhere Over the Rainbow. But some of that footage that I was talking about before they switched directors, I'm getting mixed up with who, who it was who got swapped out before Cooker took over. Then first nine days of footage that was shot where MGM was like, this is not good. That that exists. Like those nine days of footage, the raw footage exists and Judy is on set in that blonde wig. I've got to find I'll that. I'll find it for you, baby. Because I probably have it I, bookmarked. Well, thank you. <laughs> you do not have it bookmarked. What do I have bookmarked on this computer? <laughs> I'm just curious. I might regret I might regret. I was like, that is, I would not do that. Well, hold on. Let me just, I'm curious now. So let me just see. Um, yeah, never mind. <laughs> I'll bleep this out. But the first thing I saw in the bookmarks too was come. Stop, stop, stop. Oh my god. You are you are foul. And with that, you are wretched. Creepers, we so so greatly appreciate you for sticking around for episode 30. This has been such a fun episode. (laughs) So fun. Oh my god. We're excited to do another one next Friday. For now, I guess we will say farewell and thank you again for making us top 10. Keep listening, keep sharing, you guys.
Yes, thanks, creepers. Bye. Bye.